Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, we start with the situation with the tent encampments on Hastings Street and the action by the city and forced by police officers yesterday uh, to remove some of those tents and belongings on the sidewalk on Hastings Street, downtown east side. We've got Anna Cooper standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to some of the residents down there on Hastings Street, what they had to say yesterday. You know, they're just clearing us out again, making it start over again. And I, I don't think we should have to put up with that kind of thing. We pack up as much as we can, as fast as we can, but they don't give us any kind of warning for it either. I, I don't know what, what, what to do next. I really don't. We need more homes. We're homeless. We're not dangerous. We need a bed, a home, warmth, somewhere where we can have a family life. They can build right here. They're tearing down buildings to put the rich down here. Okay, let's discuss the situation now with my guest, Anna Cooper. Anna is a lawyer at Pivot Legal Society. Very pleased to welcome Anna to the show. Anna, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me this morning. Okay, yeah, but you bet. Thanks for doing it. What, what happened down there on, in the neighborhood yesterday, and what are your concerns? So yesterday, um, there was another attempted mass eviction of people sheltering on Hastings Street, um, I got there shortly after uh, police and city workers left. Um, but as I understand it, there was a large show of both city workers and DTV presence and an attempt to make a lot of people move. But then in response to community advocates and media presence, um, both city and DTD chose to leave. Um, oh. My, yeah. Um, oh, okay, so, so they chose. So how many people were actually moved out? My understanding is only um, one person was evicted yesterday, but people are being evicted daily. Um, This is an ongoing issue. This was just a particularly large attempt at eviction, but the the evictions are taking place nearly daily on that street uh, with similar shows. It's just that often um, advocates aren't there at the exact moment it begins. The media doesn't get there to cover it, so people don't realize that it's happening all the time. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, on and get your thoughts. So this is Karen Fry, the Vancouver Fire Chief, and of course there is that fire order down there and the risk of fire because some of these structures on the sidewalk, there's a city bylaw. So this is the enforcement that's going on. And I want to have you listen to the, the fire chief's concerns here, then I'll get your thoughts. This is Karen Fry. A severe risk of loss of life and damage to buildings, to occupants within those buildings, and to those individuals on the streets. Okay, so she talks about the severe risk to a loss of life here from a potentially brutal, deadly fire, and we've seen lots of fires down there. Is that not an adequate reason to sort of move people along? It's dangerous. So a few things. Firstly, the enforcement that's currently happening, the evictions are taking place pursuant to the city bylaw, not the fire order. 
So they're being taken um, according to like basic street cleaning bylaws, which really aren't about homelessness situations. They're about, you know, basic passage on city streets. The other thing is, if we talk about fire safety, I put directly to an assistant fire chief back when the fire order was being enforced in the summer, did they know that people would be more fire safe after they would be evicted from Hastings? And he said they don't know that. Because the reality is, is if you're evicting tents to nowhere, you have no reason to believe that people will be more fire safe in the next place that they set up. And given the very high numbers of fires in supportive housing and SROs this past year, you really can't say that people are actually going to be more safe from even fires in the low-income housing they're being forced into, which have many outstanding fire safety issues that aren't being remedied by the city or their landlord. So, So you, therefore, would say what people should just be allowed to continue to live on the sidewalk? Here's what I would say. I would say that we have an inherently unsafe situation. We do yeah. not have enough adequate housing um, for people to live in. And as a result, people are forced to live outside to protect their own health and safety. Those conditions are not going <clears throat> to be ideal. It's not good. But it's also not fair to say that somehow people are being evicted for their own safety. They're being evicted to remove them from public sight because they are an awkward statement on the state of our city and how we treat people. Well, hang on a second, though, because the fire chief is saying that the structures that are on the sidewalk are a fire hazard and are a risk to public safety. So let me play another. Yeah, let me play another clip for you from the fire chief. And, you know, this order has come out a long time ago. And here she is saying uh, the dangers of a fire here. And have a listen. Look at your thoughts. It's not a matter of if a fire is going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. We've seen a 110% increase in fires in our downtown east side area in the last five years. That's 4.4 fires a day. Especially when you've got, you know, structures on the sidewalk and some people may have gas canisters down there or gasoline to try and keep warm, especially in this weather. I mean, the, the hazard's obvious, is it not? Right, but what I'm asking you and Karen Fry is where are people if they're not on the block? They are just camping on another block. They still have all those fire safety hazards with them. They're still adjacent to buildings. They're still at risk of their tents going up in flames. Moving people from one block to another does nothing to change that. Well, of course, the city. I'm not arguing that there are fire safety issues on the block. I'm arguing that evicting people to another street doesn't change that. And if anything, if you talk to people down there, and even if you look at what's happening, overwhelmingly, people are managing to put out those fires, and the fire department's managed to put out those fires because people are together and they can call. 911 and they can get a response when people die in tent fires they die alone under bridges in back alleys in places where people no- don't notice them when they're okay. into flame okay well of course though the city is saying that people are not being evicted over to the next block so i'm looking at a statement from the city and it says where it says quote where individuals are required to remove their structures and have indicated they do not have other housing they are being offered access to shelter spaces or available SRO rooms. Our outreach sure. team continues to connect people, sheltering on East Hastings Street and offering them access, uh, access income, support services, housing and shelter. So you're saying what? Well, that's not happening. I'm saying that's simply untrue. So let's, let's talk about what people on the block are actually saying. They are saying that 
they're not actually being offered places to go when they're being evicted. I was on the block maybe two weeks ago while they were performing an eviction and asked the representative for city engineering on the street if the people currently being evicted were being told somewhere to go. And he said no. So the so city's li- so the city's lying. Not true. So the city- it was a massive exaggeration. Are some people being offered shelter or housing options? Yes. Is every person who's being evicted offered those options? No. Why and would the, the city thing- say that? Why would the city put out a statement saying people are being? What, what, why would the city lie about that? Because they know it is extremely unethical to evict people to nowhere. The other thing that they're doing in that statement is that they're conflating shelter with housing. And we have multiple uh, court cases at this point that very clearly say that shelters are not accessible or suitable housing for many people. And that people, it's not just that people don't like them, it's that people can't use them. Legally, they can't use them. Our own BC Supreme Court has said this. And the city keeps pretending that those cases haven't happened and that they haven't made clear statements about the adequacy of our shelter system. What, what should be done then for, with regard to the tent city and the encampment on Hastings Street? So if you're saying like the, the only alternative is, it sounds like what you're describing is just let people stay there. No, the alternative is that you actually provide people with genuine housing offers. It means that we actually have to work on the long-term solution of providing <clears throat> adequate housing to people. Yeah. And yes, in the meantime, while there isn't enough housing, we have to accept that that means that people are going to be outside. And rather than shuffling them around from block to block and trying to pretend they don't exist, we need to work with them to be as safe as possible in these admittedly unsafe and really harsh conditions. Do you do you talk to I've talked to people who live on the street down there and who have told me that they would rather stay on the street in a tent than go to a shelter because the shelters are dangerous. They don't like them. They feel safer in a tent. Have you heard that? So many times. I've been doing this work for half a decade now. And the stories people have of their experiences, not only in our shelters, but also in a lot of our low-income housing is really atrocious. People have not just had experiences of having like all of their possessions stolen or getting bed bugs or having cockroaches or rats everywhere. Um, They've experienced violence. They've experienced um, racist discrimination. Like people have reasons for not wanting to use those spaces. And I think one of the things I find most frustrating about statements coming from the government is when you pretend that those things aren't true, you're contributing to this societal belief that people are on the streets because they're somehow irrational and rejecting help, rejecting good Mm. offers, as opposed to being profoundly rational in choosing to be on the street instead of something like a local shelter. Okay. And you only don't know that if you don't want to listen to people because you know that it means you're going to have to accept that we're not doing enough right now. Anna, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. 
Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, here we go with our continuing coverage here now on the bombshell reports that have come out on Chinese state interference in Canada's elections. A lot of the initial work on this done by global news reporter Sam Cooper. Talked to Sam on the show before. He has seen some secret documents prepared by CSIS, Canada's national spy agency, on this. The latest reporting now from the Globe and Mail is similar. They have taken a look at, in some cases, top secret CSIS documents, which is incredible that reporters in Canada are getting access to this type of intelligence. And you take a look at it, it says very clearly that there was a, a sophisticated campaign of interference in Canada's elections. Many of them, many of this interference targeted against conservative party candidates. It appears the Chinese state wanted Justin Trudeau and the liberals to remain in power. Got Kenny Chu standing by, the former conservative MP. Have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here now saying, yeah, we're, we're aware China was doing this, but it didn't work. Have a listen to what he says here. All Canadians can have total confidence that the outcomes of the 2019 and the 2021 elections were determined by Canadians, Canadians alone at the voting booth. Okay, well, that's what the Prime Minister says. Let's check in with a former Conservative MP, Kenny Chu. Kenny is the uh, former Conservative MP in Steveston, Richmond East, uh, defeated in the last election. And there's been lots of evidence of Chinese state interference against his campaign. Very pleased to welcome him. Kennedy, Kenny, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for doing it. So let's talk about your experience here in 2021. When did you first become aware that you felt like th that the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party here was interfering against you? Um, it, it started, uh, well, it certainly climaxed uh, during the election, but the, there are telltale signs that um, you know, things are being organized uh, against uh, people who spoke up against, uh, you know, the communist work being done in Canada or elsewhere. And, um, for example, during the uh, parliament sessions, one of the motion was uh, to indicate that the, the, the way that the Chinese communists treated the Uyghur Muslim in Xinjiang province uh, complied to the definitions listed out in the UN. And and uh, as a genocide, and for right. that, uh, you know, across the country in talk shows, uh, you see that uh, pro-Chinese, uh, pro-CCP, uh, you know, are in the concerted effort in discrediting that and telling uh, the listeners that uh, you know the the parliamentarians are ignorant; they know nothing, and and they are misled. They have never been to Xinjiang, so how could they know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You know, even prior to the elections, uh, CSIS was in contact with me. Uh, they never disclosed why they're interested to meet me and talk to me. Uh, I would imagine that they don't, uh, they don't have time or resources to talk to each and every one of the 338 MPs. So I presume that there are, there are things that they have in hands that uh, they're of interest and concern. Yeah, and I find that very interesting that CSIS actually came to you with their concerns. What did they tell you? They would not disclose why. They just mm. uh, they just asked me for information. Uh, they asked me about uh, anything that I observe. 
And uh, so during the election, naturally, I went back to them when my volunteers uh, had reported to me that there are unusual um, disinformation campaign. It seems to be very systemic and, and organized. I, I went back to CSIS and provided them all the information and uh, they met with me. They wouldn't even take uh, any electronic uh, transmission as a means. They, they, they insisted in meeting me in person. And, mm. um, and so I provided all the screenshots on printed on paper and provided to them. They, they never wow. follow up with me. Oh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the information you disclosed to them, like this disinformation, misinformation you feel that targeted your campaign there in Stevenson, Richmond. So what precisely did, did you see? Like what, what kind of information and interference was going on? Well, Mike, it, it's not just against me. Uh, it's multidimensional and uh, it, it's against uh, the party itself. Um, it's also against my uh, leader at the time, Aaron O'Toole. Uh, there was an article written and circulated in WeChat that says, um, you know, Aaron O'Toole, it's going to ban WeChat. And for those who, who know, uh, WeChat is a, it's a messaging, it's an all-in-one uh, application that a lot of uh, Canadians, uh, diaspora who, who's from mainland China, relied on to communicate right. with their families and do business and et cetera, et cetera. So that is completely falsified. And, and there are also articles written and circulated in WeChat that mis completely mischaracterized my private member bill to, um, to uh, try to establish a foreign interference registry and uh, saying that uh, I'm going to put all the Canadian of Chinese descent uh, in jeopardy. Uh, they risk uh, being fined $400,000 for connections with uh, anybody in China, uh, that I'm a Chinese hater, that I'm anti-China. These are all completely falsified uh, disinformation circulated on WeChat and WhatsApp. Wow. Okay. So what kind of impact do you think that all had on your campaign in Steveston, Richmond East in 2021? Obviously, a large component of Chinese voters there. Do you feel that this effort that you were, you were targeted with, did it cost you the election, do you think? Is that why you were defeated? Um. I, I, I've been telling everybody that uh, winning or losing a, a campaign, it's, it's a complex matter. There are many factors at play. I've never uh, blamed the Chinese communists for my loss of the seat. However, it's, I definitely believe that it is a contributing factor. Yeah. Uh, when I go door knocking, you know, this is not my first time that I ran in Steve's and Richmond's. I, I ran in 2015. I won in 2019. And less than two years later, I ran again in 2021. The the difference uh, at the door when, when I knock on some of the constituents' uh, home, uh, it, it's, it's contrast significantly in 2021, just a short 22 months later. Uh, some supporters who used to put up signs and welcoming me uh, e even into their home uh, had reacted very emotionally. They they responded with uh, you know almost like anger, and I was wondering uh, why. Uh, and and they are saying not only that they would not take my lawn sign, but also they would not even vote for me because I'm anti-Chinese. So yeah. you know these are telltale signs that uh, you know the effectiveness of these this information campaign.
Speaking to Kenny Chu, former conservative MP, Steveston, Richmond East, defeated in 2021, talking about Chinese state interference. You have been uh, very highly critical and vocal in your, your criticism of the Chinese Communist Party and its activities in Canada. You, you mentioned that you had endorsed or uh, supported a, a proposed uh, registry, a foreign interference registry. Did that particularly, that private member's bill to establish that registry and your criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, do you think that that put you sort of on a, on almost like a, you know, a list of candidates that were targeted because you were very outspoken in your work? I don't I think, understand uh, the basis of them. I, I think they, um, the, the Chinese communists are very uh, smart and sophisticated. They will never be caught with a smoking gun in their hands with their fingerprints on. And, and, uh, but from, from all the signs and also experience. And now uh, with, the, with the CESA's reports that has been uh, viewed and, and revealed uh, by Globe and Mail, uh, yeah. it looks like the answer to that is yes, Mike. And, uh, you know, you know, and, and, the Chinese Council General seems to even be proud of the defeating of the the two MPs in Richmond. Yeah, yeah. What do you think when you listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now saying, "Well, we are aware of this Chinese state meddling that was going on. We're well aware of it. CSIS has been working hard to counteract it and defeat it, and Canadians can be confident that it it didn't work. That." they should realize that this didn't work. This Chinese campaign of interference did not distort the outcome of the election. That is his position. I'm just wondering what goes through your mind when you hear that, because one of the things I think is how can he possibly know that? I mean, you can't know what's in someone's heart and mind when they go into a voting booth and cast a ballot. You know, the people who have changed their support for you, as you described, how do you know they weren't influenced? Let me play a clip here for you from Charles Burton. We talked about this on the show earlier this week. He's with the McDonald Laurier Institute on this precise point. How can Trudeau know that it did not work? Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. I don't understand the basis of them saying it didn't have any impact on the results. I, I really don't think that you can assess that in any in any way because we have a secret ballot and why people go to the polling station and why they decide to support one candidate against another is not something which we're able to, uh, you know, to establish. Kenny, what do you think of that? Like when the prime minister says, oh, don't worry, it didn't work. What do you think? I, I you know, Mike, I, I'm not, you know, as good as, uh, as as good as the prime minister in the in the dark art of uh, wordsmithing. So, uh, you know, the only thing I know is um, that, uh, you know, if I had cancer today, I, I would want to root it out immediately uh, if I'm infected with some sort of uh, um, uh, disease or, or bacteria. I would deal with it today. I'm not going to say, oh, it's not killing me yet. You know, I'm, I'm not dead yet, so it's okay. Um, it, it likely, uh, like, likewise, uh, we know that in, you know, there are um, constituents and Canadians, uh, diaspora Chinese community, in this case, um, that CSIS has said have been influenced and manipulated by a foreign source and, and a predatorial, uh, you know, force that has their own benefit only in mind. And as the prime ministers who 
uh, first job, I would argue, is to protect Canada and is to protect Canadian. Uh, why would he not be interested to to safeguard uh, these communities from being manipulated and used by foreign sources? I find that just you know absurd uh, for a prime minister to say, to say things like that. Do Do you therefore believe that? There should be some sort of a, a registry, like a foreign influence registry. You already backed something similar in a private member's bill, as we discussed. There has been talk about a, a foreign benefit registry that if you got business dealings with uh, the Chinese state or Chinese companies, that, that, should, you should be, that should be disclosed. Do you think there should be some kind of a registry? Well, Micah, in 2021, I actually tabled in the House of Commons in Canada uh, my private member bill exactly to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it didn't go through the, the, the parliament successfully. And so uh, Senator Quebec Senator Leo Hosakos had actually retabled that in the Senate last year. And if the government is serious about protecting the country, protecting our communities, uh, he would have taken that bill seriously and fast-tracked it in the Senate, have it debated, have it amended. And, and have it enacted so that uh, at least Canada would have something. You know, my, this, this bill, it's asking for the bare minimum. It's asking uh, agents who are acting on behalf of a foreign uh, country to be listed by the Privy Council office, um, that they would just basically be transparent. Let the, let the world know what they're doing. If they are uh, lobbying an MP or a minister for certain things, that they do yeah. that and just install it. It's, it's not hurting any of their rights and freedom. Right. Kenny, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. Okay, here we go now with the golden age of travel. And I thought playing a little blue eyes there, with perfect intro. Come fly with me. Now you think about what it was like flying back in the golden age of air travel, say in like the 1960s. Oh man, the food they had on there, the service you had on, on these flights. You compare that to today now. We got the staff shortages and lost bags and canceled flights, cramped seats, you know, extra charges to check your bag, extra long security lineups, extra charges for everything else you want on the flight. Boy, it's not like the old days, is it? Let's talk about that. What a great guest I've got to talk about. It's Susan Barnes. Susan was a flight attendant at CP Air in the 1960s and 70s. And I'm very pleased to welcome Susan to the show. Susan, thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks very much, Mike, for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you here. So let's talk about when you started your careers as a flight attendant. When did you start? I started in 1968. In my mind, Mike, about 13, I decided that's what I was going to be. And uh, it never occurred to me that I couldn't achieve my dream. (laughs) <laughs> and it came true in, in October of 1968 when I joined the airline. Oh, that's wonderful. And you worked at CP Air, right? Yes, I did. And that's what it was called in those days. It was called CP Air. CP Air, yes. And back then, would, would you say this was considered kind of like a glamorous job to have? It was. And I don't even know that I would use it as a, say it was a job. It was a, a lifestyle and they interviewed hundreds of uh, applicants. And in my class, there was 
they chose 19 girls and one man. And um, out of uh, hundreds and hundreds of applicants. Uh, tell me that story you told me this off air about there was a height requirement there, right? Oh, there was. We had many requirements. Uh, they were very, we were almost like the military, but uh, <laughs> I love telling this story because I passed everything, but I was a half an inch short. And uh, <laughs> my dad was amazing, and he always said, you know, if you have a problem, come to me, I can fix it. So I hadn't told anybody that I had applied, and I went to Dad, and I said, Dad, I've done this, joined the airline, and but I'm a half an inch short, and I need you to help me. So I went upstairs, and in those days, we wore this little wood-type thing, and uh, when I went down to the basement, he had taken a half-inch dowel that he had uh, drilled a hole in, and I put some bobby pins in it, and I put this little wig on top, and lo and behold, there's not many men in the world that can make their daughter grow a half an inch in a half an hour. <laughs> so I made the uh, I made the height. So wow, uh, it was yeah, yeah. And the wonder I thought he was wonderful. Eh? Uh, how tall are you? Uh, I'm five two. Five two, and and how? So the the requirement was to be what five five three five two and a half. Okay. Because the the emergency, like your your uh, lifeboats in those days, were up in the overhead rack. Right. And if you were not 5'2", you couldn't reach them from the floor. Ah, I see. I see. Okay, speaking to Susan Barnes, her career as a flight attendant in the 1960s and 70s. Okay, Susan, let's go back in time here, and we'll listen to a commercial here from CP Air Holidays, where you used to work for many years at CP Air. Let's have a listen here to the golden age of travel. Let CP Air Holidays carry you in style. With steak and champagne meals, free in-flight movies, and wide-body cover. Next stop, beautiful Puerto Vallarta in sunny Mexico. Airfare plus seven nights accommodation from as low as $489. CPR Holidays at Puerto Vallarta. The ingredients for a perfect winter getaway. For details, call your travel agent. Okay, they had me at... They had me at steak and champagne, Susan. That sounded and nice. They had me at four hundred and ninety-nine dollars, Mike. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. Now <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about the service on on the on the flights when you were a flight attendant. Tell me about the food. What kind of food did you serve? Oh my goodness! Uh, whether you were well, we'll start with economy. In economy, um, you got a hot meal, uh, even if it was an hour flight. Breakfast, lunch, oh. dinner. You got a hot meal. You got a hot cloth to wipe your hands before your meal came. Uh, for lunch and breakfast, we took around a fruit basket. So everybody had a piece of fresh fruit. You got mm-hmm. coffee in a china cup. You had real cutlery. Up in first class, um, we had uh, we had no um, we had no small bottles of wine. So we all had to open the big wine with corkscrews, and everybody got wine in a in a wine glass. Mm. Um, you talk about the restrictions now. We served hot soup, and we all went to school to learn how to, to um, carve a Chateaubriand, which we brought out on a trolley. So they Ooh. had choices of, of uh, many things to eat. Uh, for after dinner, you got a port, uh, fruit, and cheese, or you got a liqueur. In the back, they also got free wine, free beer. They got a liqueur. I mean, they, they were... We were like a five-star restaurant, and the food was really good, Mike. 
Yeah, sure. I'm sure it was. And was there an extra charge for all that food, or was all that included? No, no, it was all included with your. Ticket. Of course, yeah, of course, yeah, it's of all course. included. Yeah, no, there's no extra no, charges. Got, no, nothing. You got newspapers and magazines, and because we didn't have any TV, right, or any movies, so you know, we we provided the inside entertainment. How about let's say uh, someone called you over and said, "I'd like a I'd like a pillow and a blanket." Could you set that up for them? Oh, absolutely. We sure. actually, uh, prior to boarding, uh, we put a pillow on um, on every seat, and so little things like you know that little piece of cloth that you've got behind you on your seat. We put a clean <laughs> one on every stop. Every time somebody left the seat, you got a new uh, a new clean headrest. <laughs> Okay, Susan, let me ask you about, okay, in the 1960s now, boy, we're talking a different era here. So oh, we're, we're talking about the, the Mad Men era here. Like, would you, would you say that um, as a young woman working in that industry at, at that time, well, I'm sure there was a little bit of sexism or probably a lot of sexism going on here. Any, any of these men on these flights uh, get fresh with you or anything? Yeah, they did, you know, but that was the exception, not the rule, Mike. And, um, you know, today everybody's so sensitive. And in those days, you'd just say, you know, please don't touch the merchandise. And they were really, really, really good, 99.9% of them, you know. And we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't look at it. Um, I don't say I took it as a compliment, but I certainly no. didn't take it like it was sexual harassment. Mm, okay. You know, well, so it's times of... I think maybe times have changed. Times have changed, maybe in some ways for the better, but and maybe in a lot of other ways, maybe not so much. So let me ask you about, because I know you're a frequent traveler today, right? Like you travel, is it in Mexico you go frequently? Oh, I travel all over the world still. My, um, I have free passes and uh, believe me, I use them. Oh, that's wonderful. So how would you say things things have changed? Like how would you compare the flying experience to d- today Back in your to back in your day. Well, in my day, um, we made our passengers feel special, and we did that not just ourselves working the plane, but our company. They provided us with the tools to make the people feel special. When I get on a plane today, I feel like I'm on a bus, but I'm flying in the air. Yeah. And you know, you uh, you're lucky if you can get a glass of water if you need a pill. Uh, some places, some airlines have nothing. Uh, you get no service, and what little you get, you have to pay for. So really, they've reduced the, the air travel to, uh, I feel like, a little bit of a cattle, uh, as they say, on a bus, and I'm just shuffled from A to B. Now, you go to Europe, Mike, and you get on um, British Airways or you get on Singapore Airlines, and I do that, and it's just like taking me back to my day. They wear wonderful uniforms, they feed you, they pamper you. Mm. And I don't know how more North America got so far off the rails. Okay, isn't that interesting that when you fly in some of these other airlines around the world, they seem to have maintained that sort of higher standard of service, right? Very much so. I mean, when you walk through a European airline, airport, and you see them coming at you in your uniform, you can say British Airways, Singapore whatever you walk through here and I have a hard time in North America telling a, a crew member from uh, a rider you know from a passenger they're all in yeah. jeans or whatever they're in there's nothing other than a badge around their neck in many cases 
this isn't the, everything, but in many cases, you, you, you can't tell the difference. All right, my guest is Susan Burns. Susan was a flight attendant in the 1960s and 1970s. She worked at CP Air, and we're talking about the golden age of air travel. Lots of calls on the open line. Hi, John and Langley. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, hi Susan. I, I, I remember, hi, uh, I have fond memories of flying back in the mid-60s, and uh, although I did fly with CP Air, uh, one uh, memorable flight was with Ward Air, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, and uh, for a dinner, they served a filet mignon uh, with wine and actual silverware in China. And uh, yeah. it was it, it was fabulous. Uh, the only complaint I had back in that day was on the, the return flight. What did they serve again coming home? Filet mignon. But, <laughs> no, we'll, I, I think we've lost uh, the quality of service. And I don't know if we'll ever, ever see. We'll never see that type of service again. And uh, well. If I guess if your only complaint was there was too much filet mignon, I guess you're you're not doing too bad. <laughs> Su- Susan, what you mentioned some of those meals, like those hot meals. I I remember people remember the days of the hot meals when you'd have the uh, you'd have the what, what did you have like ovens in the back of the plane or something? Yeah, we did. The uh, catering uh, department would bring in uh, ovens. They were convection ovens, and they would go in and they'd be turned on as we we're taxing off and. And in those days, Mike, believe it or not, you had a choice in economy here. You would have a choice of like a filet or a chicken. Yeah. Or if you had a special diet, you could phone into uh, Kara and they would uh, cater you a vegetarian or whatever you needed. Oh, boy. And, cool. uh, you know, so you'd go up and be prior to the meal. You would take their order. Did they want fish, or did they want chicken or steak and red wine or white wine? And you'd deliver it to them. Of course. On yeah, China. On, on China. China. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Rob in Surrey. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey there. Um, you know, end of the day, is, you know, she is talking two different things. She's talking about, you know, international flights there, you know, with Singapore going that way there. Great, great airline, British Airways, Luft, uh, Lufthansa. Those are all international flights. You still get those services on those planes. Yeah. Um, yeah domestic flights. Yeah, it's pretty skinny, but you're paying for domestic pricing. You go to Europe, you know, uh, Ryanair, you can fly for $78 pretty much anywhere in Europe. And uh, they don't have anything. But, you know, the prices in today's times, uh, you pay for what you get. Airfare is pretty cheap, uh, international and or domestic. So, um, yeah, I miss the old days. But um, they are different different things. Uh, uh, first class, business class, premium economy to uh, uh, what they were before. So, uh, well, two different, two different things. thank you for making the point. I do think, though, Susan, for your thoughts, like, okay, like they say, the airlines say we can't afford this level of service anymore. Well, they could afford it back in your day. So what's the problem? Well, I mean, you just had, Mike, you had an example there where you played the advertisement for $499. Uh, that was flight, uh, a hotel uh, on um on uh, the charter, uh, yep. four hundred ninety-nine dollars for seven days. Now, you uh, and you got a meal on that one, so I defy you sure. to find a place where you can go to Puerto Vallarta, flight, food, and hotel for four ninety-nine a person. Right? Yeah, okay. steak and champagne on the flight. Bruce and uh, Kamloops. Absolutely. Oh yeah, you got to have the steak and champagne. Bruce and Kamloops. Yeah. Bruce, you got thirty yeah, seconds I- here. Go ahead. Hi, Susan and Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, uh, I grew up in a Air Canada family. My father was a manager, so I was traveling, and Susan would know this word, non-revenue, and as a con, standby, <laughs> basically, in the 60s and 70s. And I remember being in the 747, going over to Europe, and 
we got upgraded to first class because you never knew if you were standby what you would get. And if, if you had to, if you had a tie with you and the appropriate dress, and there was only space up front, you got to sit up front. So we enjoyed oh. the lounge in the 747. Oh, where there was a, basically a bar up there and swivel seats and a, a stereo mm-hmm. with a cassette tech playing music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and one comment on why we are where we are. One has to remember the airlines are providing us services for profit. You know, yeah. full fare oh, sure. economy, even in it's, the 90s when I was... It's a cutthroat cut throat profit. Thank you, Bruce, for the call. Hate to cut you off, but sadly, we're out of time. Susan, it was a great pleasure to have you here on the show today. Thank you for coming on. I hope you're enjoying your retirement and all your travels now. Thank you very much, Mike, and thanks again for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.